Welcome to the Bible for My Ordinary Life podcast. My name is Alicia Parker. I live a pretty ordinary life, and I really enjoy studying and teaching the Bible. I believe the Bible is more than just a collection of interesting stories. It's God's communication to humankind, a revelation about who He is and how we fit into the story He is telling, even if we feel like our personal story is a little bit ordinary. The Bible includes 66 individual books with a unifying theme. God desires a relationship with us. So I'm glad you're here, and I hope by the time we're done, you've learned a little bit more about who God is and the relationship He desires to have with you. Hi there. If you're a returning listener, I'm so thankful for your faithfulness in journeying through the Gospel of John alongside me. If you're new to this podcast and haven't listened to the previous 20 episodes, welcome. I'm thrilled that you're here. I hope when time allows, you're able to access the previous teachings in this series. Today, we are in John chapter 11, and we'll be starting our study today in verse 45. In the previous verses, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, which is the final turning point in his earthly ministry. In the second half of this chapter, and all the way up through John chapter 18, we will study the very short time period of the six days before Jesus' crucifixion. This miracle, bringing Lazarus back to life, is a foreshadowing of Jesus' own resurrection. But let's not get ahead of ourselves too quickly. Are you ready to jump into the second half of John 11? I'm starting in verse 45, and I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard today. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and said, What are we going to do since this man does many signs? If we let him continue in this way, everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and remove both our place and our nation. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You are not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and he stayed there with his disciples. John starts this section out with the word, therefore. I have heard no shortage of preachers instruct their congregation that when you see the word therefore in the Bible, ask yourself what it's there for. It's a great reminder to pay attention to things like literary devices. Therefore is a transition word. John just told us that Lazarus walked out of the tomb and Jesus told the people to take off his grave clothes. Then he says, therefore, many Jews believed in him. This is a cause-and-effect scenario. Cause. Jesus raised a dead man back to life. Effect. People who saw this believed in him. Or said this way, The reason many Jews believed in him is because they saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. In the very next verse, we have another transition word. This one is the word but. When we see the word but used between two phrases or two sentences, we typically are looking for a contrast in ideas or thoughts being established. That's exactly what's going on here. We have a crowd that saw this miracle and believed in Jesus, 
but not everyone did. Some went back to Jerusalem to tell the Pharisees. Those who encounter Jesus don't always respond the same way. As one commentator I read put it, the same sun that can melt ice can also harden bricks of clay. So those who went back to tell the Pharisees about what Jesus had done with Lazarus did so knowing that the Pharisees were plotting how to get rid of Jesus. They were not doing it to celebrate Jesus or to help his cause. In fact, John tells us that this is the tipping point for the plot to kill Jesus that will lead to the crucifixion. Rather than soften their hearts, Jesus' miracle hardened their hearts toward him. In the next verse, we see another transition word. John says, So the chief priests and Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin. We've got this progression of events that starts with Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and ultimately results in the religious leaders plotting his death. It didn't matter to them that Jesus restored a man's life and returned him to his family. The Pharisees had it out for Jesus. No matter what he said or what he did, they were set on not believing he was who he claimed, and they were set on silencing him. Their hard-heartedness, however, is not unique to them. I don't know about you, but I find that sometimes people in my circle, or even outside my direct circle, are resistant to considering that what they first believed about something might not be true, even when the evidence should sway them to change their minds. This is especially true in the polarized environment of American politics and the extreme biases on both sides of the media spectrum. Both sides want to present every situation in light of what they already believe rather than in a neutral, factual manner, letting people decide for themselves how to interpret events or words spoken. But this is not a podcast about American politics. Instead, let's just consider for our own lives how well we respond when presented with evidence contrary to our beliefs. If we find something in scripture that seems to go against our traditional view, do we find a way to justify our own thinking? Are we like these Pharisees who want to silence Jesus for contradicting them? Or do we stop and consider that perhaps we need an adjustment to our framework of thinking or beliefs? No matter what Jesus did, even raise a man from the dead, there were people who would not be convinced he was who he claimed to be, and instead wanted him dead. So some of the witnesses head off to tell the Pharisees that Jesus just raised the dead, and the Pharisees spring into action. They call the chief priests and the Sanhedrin. Your version might say the council. The Sanhedrin, or the council, was a group of 70 members who were in charge of making religious decisions and had the authority of the Roman government to enact some civil law. They had religious power and some political power as permitted by the Roman government. Notice their discussion. Nobody is actually questioning if Lazarus was truly raised from the dead. Do you remember back in chapter 9 how the blind man who had been given his sight was questioned multiple times and even his parents were brought in? The Pharisees in that scenario were very focused on the miracle and how Jesus did it. At this point, the focus has changed. Verse 48 reveals their concern. What are we going to do? If we let him continue, we will lose our political and religious power. 
all along, this group has been concerned about their own position and their own pride. It's never been about considering that Jesus might have truth to share. It really comes out in these verses as they wring their hands and fret over what they should do to preserve their place in the world. Remember that this isn't a time period where the Romans were ruling over the Jews and Caesar was in the minds of the Romans, God. The Jews had some power over their religious matters and their politics, but if anyone came alongside claiming to be a new king or claiming to be God, there would be reason to fear retribution from the Romans. So some of the fear of these Jews was that the Romans would squash any attempt to usurp Caesar or their control of the empire. But Jesus never claimed to come and be a political savior. That was a misinterpretation of the Jews who didn't really listen or understand his message. Jesus was always talking about the kingdom of heaven, not a kingdom he intended to create on earth. So these super nervous Jewish leaders all gather up and one of them speaks up. It's the high priest, Caiaphas. He starts out a little pompous and rude by declaring that everyone else there knows nothing at all. And then he gives his opinion, which is that it's better for one man to die and preserve the status quo of the Jewish people than for him to disrupt it and cause a bunch of problems for the whole Jewish nation, which included the men gathered in this room. John gives us a parenthetical author's note to explain Caiaphas's comments. John is writing this narrative years later and, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells his readers and us that Caiaphas's statement here was a prophecy, even though Caiaphas wasn't intending to prophesy. Because Jesus did die, and he did die for the whole nation. John tells us that Jesus died not just for the nation of Israel, but for all of God's people scattered on the earth. So Caiaphas makes this proclamation, and John tells us that from this day on, they plotted to kill Jesus. Jesus, knowing this, retreated to a village called Ephraim and stayed there for a while. Now, John has been excellent about giving us signposts that mark when certain parts of his gospel occurred. He regularly uses the Jewish festivals to cue us to the time period and setting. The last signpost we had was in chapter 10, when Jesus had gone to Jerusalem for the festival of dedication, which is in the winter. We call this festival Hanukkah. He escaped an attempted stoning and retreated across the Jordan. The next scene change is when Jesus heads to Bethany and resurrects Lazarus. We aren't given a time of year or any specific amount of time that passes between Jesus leaving Jerusalem and then returning to Bethany, which is only two miles away from Jerusalem. But we do know the disciples are nervous about returning to a place so near Jerusalem because the Jews had just attempted to stone Jesus. But they go, and Jesus brings Lazarus back to life. However, because of the plot to kill him, he and the disciples then retreat to Ephraim. It's not clear exactly where this village is, but Jesus stays there until chapter 12, where we read, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of fragrant oil, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Usually, I split my podcast into two parts for each chapter of John. 
But today, we're going to dive a bit into Chapter 12 because it makes sense to include some of these events with what we've just talked about. We see here that it's Passover season. Passover takes place sometime between late March and late April each year. When the Passover was established in Exodus, the Jews used a different calendar than we do, and their festivals, like this one, were set based on days of the month or moon cycles. So the last signpost we had was winter, and Jesus had celebrated Hanukkah. And between that and this signpost, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Now it's springtime, and sometime between March and April, and we've arrived at the final festival Jesus will celebrate here on earth. It's six days before the Passover feast. For Jews who are believers, this is the last Passover they will celebrate, because Jesus' death and resurrection will end the need to celebrate Passover. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself again. Let's talk a bit about the events at this dinner. Jesus arrives at Bethany. And John wants us to know that he's in the specific town of Bethany where Lazarus lived. Lazarus, the one Jesus raised from the dead. Because there are two towns with the name Bethany. Remember, in our last episode that I mentioned, Mary and Martha did not have the advantage of knowing John would write a chapter 12. Well, at this point, they've had their brother back for several weeks or maybe months. And Jesus comes to town, so they do the proper hospitable thing and prepare a meal for him. John points out that Martha is the one serving dinner, and we know they are not at Mary and Martha's house. John actually doesn't include this detail, but Mark and Matthew do, and we learn from them that Jesus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were eating at Simon's house. And not just any Simon, but Simon the leper. Mark 14 says, Now while Jesus was in Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper, Reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of costly aromatic oil from pure nard. After breaking open the jar, she poured it on his head. And Matthew 26 says, Now while Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of expensive perfumed oil, and she poured it on his head as he was at the table. John often records events not previously recorded in the other gospel writers' accounts. But in this case, we see the same story represented three times through the lens of each author. The gospel writers don't tell us if Simon had been healed of leprosy or not. Jesus did heal lepers during his ministry, and it would be rare for people to eat with a leper since the disease is contagious and they were considered unclean. But regardless, we have the setting, which is six days before the Passover. Jesus is in Bethany at the house of Simon, eating dinner prepared by Martha. Lazarus is reclining at the table with Jesus, and Mary decides to anoint Jesus with an expensive perfume and wipe his feet with her hair. Now let's take each sibling in order and talk briefly about their relationship with Jesus. Martha is serving. John doesn't record the story, but Luke tells us of another time Jesus had gone to Mary and Martha's house, and Martha was doing all the work while Mary sat and listened to Jesus. Martha gets annoyed at Mary for not helping and complains to Jesus. But Jesus gently points out that what Mary is doing is good, and her choice to learn at his feet is better than Martha's choice to worry and bustle around during housework. Here again, we see Martha serving. It's easy to get on Martha's case, since Jesus had to correct her in the story told by Luke in chapter 10 of his gospel. But I want us to stop and consider that serving is also good. And this time, she doesn't complain about it. Martha has a servant's heart, 
and serving probably brings her joy. Lazarus is reclining at the table with Jesus. Now, first century dinner tables were not constructed like ours. They didn't make chairs. Instead, the table was low to the ground and probably only a few inches off the ground. So people would lay on their side with their heads near the table and their feet stretched out away from the table. They ate reclined like this rather than seated in chairs. I really like the imagery here. Lazarus, who had been dead, but was raised to life by Christ, is seated next to him at the table. If you're a believer, you too have been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life, and now you too can recline with Jesus at his table. And someday, we will be raised from physical death to physical life, and we will be seated with Jesus at the table he has prepared for us in heaven. So Martha is serving, and Lazarus is reclining and eating with Jesus. And then there's Mary. Mary is worshiping. She takes perfume, pours it on his feet, and wipes his feet with her hair, and the whole house is filled with the fragrance of this perfume. We might miss a few nuances to this passage if we aren't familiar with first century Jewish customs. Let's talk first about this perfume. Perfume wasn't something worn daily by people. Back before our current pandemic, when I used to leave my house dressed for work with makeup on and wearing something other than running shorts and t-shirts, I would often squirt a bit of perfume on my wrists and neck. But the perfume I buy isn't very expensive, and in light of what I earn in a year, it's extremely inexpensive. In the first century, perfume is used for very special occasions, and typically was used for preparing dead bodies for burial since they didn't embalm bodies as we do today. We are told that this perfume was worth a full year's wages. Think about an average salary in the place you live, perhaps your own salary. Can you imagine spending an entire year's wages on a bottle of perfume? I can't, but Mary has this in her possession. She could have kept it, sold it, or used it, and she chose to use it on Jesus. The second thing we need to make note of is Mary's hair. It would have been socially unacceptable for Mary to show her hair in public. A woman's hair was covered up in the same manner in which we cover certain body parts in public. A woman's hair was covered up in the same manner in which we cover other body parts in public. In American culture, if a woman goes out in public with her calves showing, no one will think anything of it. Same if her hair is down. It just doesn't matter. These are acceptable to expose to others. But if a woman goes out in public with her entire torso exposed and uncovered, she could be arrested for indecent exposure. And culturally, people would be very surprised. They might even avert their eyes. It would just be awkward and uncomfortable. That's the same cultural experience in first century Jewish culture with a woman's hair. It was just uncomfortable, awkward, and inappropriate to show it in public. But here, we see Mary throwing cultural expectations to the wind because of her desire to worship Jesus. She is willing to use her hair to wipe his feet from the anointing that she did, even though that act would have made the people in the room shocked and a little bit uncomfortable. So imagine the scene. Several men, including Jesus and Lazarus, are reclined at a table with their legs stretched out behind them, and they're eating. Martha is bringing in dishes for the meal from the kitchen and probably removing things that they've finished with. Mary comes in 
and opens a jar with a pound of perfume. She kneels or sits at Jesus' feet and pours this expensive perfume on them. She then lets her hair down and begins to wipe his feet dry. The whole house gets this fragrant smell from Mary's perfume. And guess what? Some of the men take issue. Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, speaks up. I'll pick up in verse 4. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, Why wasn't this fragrant oil sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. Jesus answered, Leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Then a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he'd raised from the dead. Therefore, the chief priests decided to kill Lazarus also, because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. John has some hindsight. So when he tells his readers that Judas speaks up, he includes a parenthetical note that this is the Judas who will betray Jesus. Judas wants to know why this perfume was poured on Jesus' feet, when it could have had a better use by being sold so that they could use the money for the poor. Again, John uses his hindsight to tell his readers that Judas' intention wasn't really to help the poor. He saw how valuable that perfume was and knew if it had been sold, he would have had access to skimming some of the profits for himself because he held the money used by Jesus and his disciples for their ministry. Again, we see someone who encountered Jesus and spent time with Jesus, who had clearly witnessed his miracles and heard his teaching, but was not swayed to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Judas, like the Pharisees and the chief priests, was only interested in serving himself. Now, Jesus' answer might seem like he didn't really care about the poor people, but that's not it at all. He's telling Judas not to criticize Mary's act of worship. There are plenty of ways to serve and help the poor, but Mary had just a small window of opportunity to worship Jesus in this way. He also knows that Judas's heart isn't really focused on the poor, and Jesus knows his death and burial are just a few days away. This section concludes with large crowds of Jews coming to see both Jesus and Lazarus. Remember, it's only six days from the Passover, and Jerusalem is only two miles away from Bethany. Word is out that Jesus is in town, and he's with Lazarus. So people who weren't there to witness the resurrection of Lazarus, but are now in town, want to come check things out. If I were one of those Jews, I'd probably want to go check out the situation as well. It's not like back then people could take a selfie with Lazarus and text it to you and say, see, he's really alive. And there wouldn't be a YouTube video someone had the quick thinking to create when Jesus showed up at the tomb. They would have had to rely on eyewitness accounts or coming to see for themselves. And so people were coming to Bethany. And guess who decides that's not cool? The chief priests. So they talk and decide that while they're also plotting Jesus' death, they probably need to kill Lazarus as well. Why? Well, John tells us in verse 11, because many people were deserting them to follow Jesus. 
They couldn't stand the thought of Jesus and now Lazarus disrupting their status quo. So where are you and where am I in this scene? My very ordinary 21st century American life certainly has its big differences from first century Israel. But we are all faced with some choices when we encounter the truth of Jesus. Many Jews wanted Jesus to perform signs and miracles. But even after he did, some of them didn't believe in him. And others did. If you are waiting for God to prove himself through some miracle or specific answer to a prayer request you have, let me caution you that scripture says salvation comes through faith. Salvation doesn't come through gathering enough evidence or having God perform for you. It comes through faith. If people could watch Jesus raise someone out of a grave they'd been in for four days and still not believe, we can be sure that evidence of miracles is not enough to convince people to turn to Jesus. Jesus does not want to put on a show to get your love. He wants your faith. And if we have placed our faith in Jesus, are we willing to serve like Martha? Sit and be in Jesus' presence like Lazarus? And offer our very best in worship like Mary? All three siblings related to Jesus in different ways during that meal, but all three are appropriate responses to encountering Jesus. Contrast that with Judas, who walked and ate and served with Jesus. He basically grew up in the church, if you know what I mean. But his heart was not in it. He did not embrace Jesus as Lord of his life. Ultimately, he would betray Jesus and regret that so much he would commit suicide. Encountering Jesus doesn't always produce faith. Hanging out with Jesus and fellow Jesus disciples doesn't always produce faith. We each have a choice. I hope for you that choice is to believe that Jesus is who he said he was, the Messiah. He is worthy of our faith, of our service, and of our worship. Thanks so very much for taking the time to listen to today's episode of The Bible for My Ordinary Life. My name is Alicia Parker. I hope you learned something and our time together encouraged your personal relationship with God. Be sure to check out my companion website at www.bibleforteordinarylife.com.